So I'm Dr. T. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Trace. I am super excited. I probably should say anxious uh, to talk to you today and continue our sermon series called Top 10. So if you've been attending for a little while, you know that Trace contacted some people who are involved in marketing and they told us what the 10 most searched for things on Google were in our area. And so we've been covering those things like item by item, just discussing what the word of God has to say about what our community seems most interested in. And today I'm gonna be talking with you guys about anxiety. So I wanted to say something before I get started. The first is you have my permission not to diagnose yourself. You have my permission not to diagnose yourself. People who struggle with anxiousness, and I'll talk about this a little bit over the course of our time today, tend to be really hard on themselves. And if that's you this morning, the second thing I wanna say is, you have my permission not to be hard on yourself. Don't second guess every decision you've made or every thought you've ever had or every relationship you've ever been a part of over the course of your life if you struggle a little bit with anxiety. Um, So anxiety just so happens to be the most common mental health struggle in the United States of America. Let me give you a couple of statistics. One in five adults, age 18 or older, struggles with a clinically significant amount of anxiety. Maybe more startling, one in four adolescents, age 13 to 18, struggles with clinically significant levels of anxiety. So this is a really important topic for the church to address. And anxiety can take a couple of different forms. I wanted to break those down for you a little bit this morning too. The most common anxiety struggle I work with in a clinical setting, which I teach in a counseling program and I oversee a counseling center, is called General Anxiety Disorder, GAD. And that is an excessive fear or worry about everyday situations that lasts longer than six months. So the duration of, those, of that symptom of excessive fear or worry is significant. Anxiety, really normal, and it's actually pretty valuable. So if you're walking home in a dark area and you come up on an alleyway and you start feeling feelings of anxiousness, That's a survival mechanism, it's really useful, right? But excessive fear or worry about everyday situations persisting longer than six months, um, that's what we would call in mental health a general anxiety disorder potentially. Another classification for uh, symptoms of anxiousness is called social anxiety disorder. And that is an intense and persistent fear of worry that people are watching and or judging you. And so we've all felt that from time to time. I think preachers struggle with that from time to time, wondering, Lord, is what you've put on my heart to say gonna be well-received and encouraging to your people? Not unusual, all right? But if it's really persistent, it can become problematic. Another type of anxiety we sometimes notice in a clinical setting is like a specific phobia, a specific phobia. This is a true story. Um, I have a little bit of... Uh, uh, arachnophobia. 
which if you're familiar with that, it's the fear of spiders. As God is my witness, last night, I fell asleep thinking about this sermon and I had a dream, black widows the size of footballs surrounded and invaded my house. True story. Um, So that is an excessive and intense fear of things that likely pose little to no threat is is a specific phobia right? And the last time of anxiety we sometimes see in a counseling or in a mental health setting is a panic disorder, which is unexpected and frequent feelings or waves of feeling like I'm losing control, despite uh, the lack of a stimulus that would make that feeling of a loss of control make sense. So that's panic disorder. And I would like to suggest to you this morning, Trace Church, that there is no one throughout recorded history that understands what it feels like to be overwhelmingly anxious better than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus came to this earth both fully God and fully man, which means he knew what his future would hold. Now, he's the only person in history who knew for a fact what his future would hold. And sometimes that's what causes us feelings of anxiousness is we think our crystal ball works and that we know how our future will play out. Only Jesus did. And Jesus knew that in his future, he would be crucified. And as the day of his torture and betrayal and crucifixion approached, Jesus began feeling overwhelmingly anxious. And so Jesus invites his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to the Mount of Olives. There's this garden on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane, and he prays to the Lord, his Father, and his prayer is famous, Lord, if there's a way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so, but not my will, yours be done. He prays that multiple times, and after he finished praying, Luke's gospel in the 22nd chapter in the 44th verse records Jesus being in anguish and praying more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now that's an actual medical condition that doctors call hematidrosis. And it arises from, you probably could guess, feelings of overwhelming Anxiety. And in this moment, Jesus is facing something excruciating. And that word actually is a Latin term meaning tortured by crucifixion that we use today to describe something that like feels overwhelmingly anxiety inducing. And why did Jesus do that, Trace Church? He did that because he wanted to demonstrate the love he has for each of you. What an overwhelming demonstration of that love. And in this part of Jesus' story, what we know is that his anxiety was caused by his upcoming crucifixion. But anxiety in our lives is caused by a few different factors that we're gonna talk through this morning. So there are really four factors that significantly influence anxiety in our day-to-day lives. I'm gonna break these down one at a time. And for the next few minutes, this is gonna sound pretty technical and and kind of mental health oriented. And I'm gonna conclude with some biblical truths about how to heal anxiety, okay? So what the literature in my field suggests is that anxiety is significantly influenced 
by your genetic code. So when scientists want to study genetics, often they study twins. And sometimes they study twins who are adopted into different families and they try to discern the difference in genetic predisposition from environmental influence. And what researchers believe today is that up to 40% of your risk for anxiety is accounted for in your genetic predisposition. And so there are two things that are important to mention there. First, some people genetically are designed by God to release more stress hormones during a stressful event. One of those is called cortisol. So some people experience a stress-inducing event and their bodies are designed to release a little bit more stress hormones in that situation, making their level of stress a little bit greater than people who are not genetically predisposed to release that level of stress hormone in a stressful situation. The second way genes influence feelings of anxiousness is in how quickly your body metabolizes those stress hormones. So some people release higher levels in stress, stressful situations, and some people take longer to metabolize those stress hormones, which means stress accumulates faster and lasts a little bit longer. This is important because if you're feeling anxious, likely there's a genetic or biological component, which means what I said earlier is true. You should not be hard on yourself if you're feeling anxious. You have my permission to get out of your head about your anxiety. The second factor I wanna talk about that influences anxiety is trauma. And I've talked with trauma, uh, I've talked about trauma at Trace Church before, but to discuss how trauma influences anxiety today, I wanna talk about your brain. And your brain is a really extraordinary organ And when we're thinking in terms of how trauma influences anxiety, we break the human brain down into two kind of categories. One uh, categorical sort of structure in your brain is called the limbic system. And that's the central part of your brain. Your brainstem comes up through your spinal cord into your limbic system. And your limbic system is responsible for your fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mechanisms. And it's really, really reactive versus reflective. So your limbic system, very reactive. And some scientists call this the childlike part of your brain that seeks pleasure and seeks to relieve pain. And so if you're married and your spouse happens to be acting childish, Instead of calling them him or her childish from this day forward, you can just say, hey, bud, your limbic system's getting a little out of control. And if you're accused of that, uh, if you're acting childish and you realize it, you could just say, sorry, my limbic system made me do it. That's the way that works. Okay, no, that's not an excuse. But your limbic system is the core part of your brain that's responsible for your life-saving reactions. Information travels from your limbic system up to the front part of your brain, which is called your prefrontal cortex. And that's your brain's executive functioning center. And it's responsible for your brain's sort of higher order operations, all right? One of those is your um, impulse control capability, all right? So the prefrontal cortex helps you soothe yourself and control your impulses. That part of your brain is not fully developed until, until about age 26. 
So this is why adolescents and young adults need lots of structure. It's because their prefrontal cortex, the impulse control center of their brain is not fully developed. They literally have trouble controlling impulses because that structure of their brain is not fully developed. This is also the part of your brain that's responsible for decision-making. So impulse control and decision-making, really critical features of your uh, executive functioning center, which we call your prefrontal cortex. So this is what happens, right? Information travels into your brain unidirectionally, only from one direction, from your body and your five senses into your spinal cord, up your brain stem, into your limbic system. And then whatever your limbic system tells you to do gets sent to your prefrontal cortex, which helps you decide, is that really what I should do or not? And the greater the level of stress and trauma, the less your brain is influenced by your prefrontal cortex. So the higher the level of stress, the less the prefrontal cortex influences your response. And the reason that happens is because the more stressful something is, likely the more life-threatening it is, likely the less time you have to calculate through a really adequate response, right? So if I hear glass breaking in my house at 2 a.m. and I know everybody's in bed, my limbic system wakes me up and says, shoot to kill. My prefrontal cortex says, wait a second, you don't know who's down there. Maybe it's someone who's destitute and down on their luck. Maybe they need the objects in your home more than you do, Trent. You should probably walk down there, make sure it's not one of the kids, talk to a person, discern their level of need and, and decide on whether or not you feel like you should help that person. Now that's not that healthy in that context, not that helpful, right? But that's the interplay. So I got a candle here to demonstrate. Like if you put your hand on a hot stove, ouch, it's your limbic system that forces you to withdraw your hand. So in this case, it's my limbic system that influences me to withdraw my hand. It's my prefrontal cortex that keeps me from saying, fire, everybody get out of the building and us all running for cover. Why does my prefrontal cortex interfere with that? Because this is a candle, not a building on fire, right? So the interplay between the two is really important. And in a traumatic experience, your prefrontal cortex is its functioning is diminished and in some cases it completely shuts down. And if the traumatic event is stressful enough or prolonged enough, it can interfere with the connection between your limbic system and your prefrontal cortex leading to lasting limbic system activation without any stimulus that makes that activation make sense. And this can lead people to feeling lots of anxiousness far after they've experienced a really stressful traumatic event. All right, another factor that influences feelings of anxiousness is your environment. So when we're talking about environment and its relationship to anxiety, usually what we're talking about is the experiences you've had with your primary caretaker before age eight, definitely before age 10. So we're gonna do some family of origin discussion here, okay? So on the screen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you a theory that was taught to me by a mentor of mine, Dr. Adrian Hickman at Capstone Treatment Center, uh, who's a university professor, published author, really incredible guy. This is kind of his theory that I sort of helped develop over time to fit our discussion today. So I teach this to graduate students. So on this continuum, 
let's just say exists every possible emotion a person can experience divided into six categories. So at one level of depth exists sorrow. And let's say every other emotion that's similar to sorrow, we would loop in that category, like anguish and, and overwhelming despair. And then a step up from sorrow, let's say, is sadness. And then a step up from sadness, we'll say, is anxiety. And those are categories. A step up from anxiety is, we'll say, pleasure. A step up from pleasure, happiness. A step up from happiness, joy. Okay, so if you're thinking about the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, the closer you get to the center of that continuum, the more emotion you're feeling in your limbic system. Remember, the center part of your brain wants to avoid pleasure and wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure. That's the center part of your brain. The farther out on the continuum you go, the more influenced, the more those emotions are influenced by your prefrontal cortex. They're much more complex and require a much higher executive level of thought, right? That's confusing, I know. Just stick with me on this. So in childhood, have you ever wondered like what the function of emotions are? If you've raised kids, you probably have asked yourself, Lord, why is my child crying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year? And that's an interesting question. What is the purpose of our emotion? And what the research says and what the scriptures teach is that our emotion is a signal for help. So baby's crying, a caregiver addresses the cry with some affectionate nurturing response and what happens to the baby? It's, the child is soothed, right? That never worked for my kids, but theoretically that's what's supposed to happen, right? All right, so in that mutual connection between caretaker and child, there is something that happens neurologically that causes soothing of emotion. So this is the way this works, right? In life, if I encounter a sorrow producing experience, information travels up my body into my limbic system, I feel uncomfortable, I feel a little maybe overwhelmed, it travels to my prefrontal cortex and my prefrontal cortex goes, this is sorrow and interprets that as a feeling of sorrow. And what does my prefrontal cortex influence me to do based on God's design? Express that sorrow. And my expression of sorrow can be responded to in one of three ways by my caregiver. It can be accepted. Caregiver approaches me, comforts me, tells me that they love me. And my feeling of sorrow, what happens to you when that happens to you? It subsides, it improves. So it's like pulling my hand away off of a hot, stimulus, a pain-inducing stimulus. But what if I'm crying and my caregiver says, Trent, men don't cry. Buck up, bud, stop acting like a girl. That's rejection and that hurts. Or what if someone walks by as I'm expressing sorrow like I don't even exist? That's neglect, that hurts too. And what does my limbic system tell me to do as it relates to pain? whatever it takes not to feel that same pain. So if every time I express sorrow, my expression of sorrow is rejected or neglected, my limbic system eventually is like, ooh, every time you express sorrow, that really hurts, stop expressing it. And my brain stops sending that signal from my limbic system to my prefrontal cortex, so I don't have to express it, but what ends up happening is I lose my ability to feel it. 
because that signal stops being sent. And so now in life, a sorrow-producing experience doesn't lead to a feeling of sorrow. My brain doesn't function that way to avoid the pain of rejection or neglect of my sorrow. So I only feel sadness. Every sorrow-producing experience I encounter now in life only leads to a feeling of sadness that leads to an expression of sadness. And if my expression of sadness is rejected or neglected enough, my limbic system says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not gonna keep expressing that. That expression hurts too bad. So it stops sending that signal to my prefrontal cortex and I end up losing my ability to feel sadness. Now, if you're looking at the continuum, you're probably going, man, Trent, that's not a bad way to live. All you can feel is joy, happiness, pleasure, and a little anxiety. Sign me up. But here's what researchers discovered about 25 years ago. Our emotions function like a well. And I've got this on the screen for you this morning. I know what you're thinking right when you see that graphic. You're like, Trent, that looks just exactly like a well. That's the first thing I thought it was when I saw it. I know it wasn't. I'm not an art major. I'm a humanities guy, all right? So at the bottom level of depth in my emotional system, which I feel at the most... uh, Forefront of my brain is sorrow. And a little bit behind sorrow, I feel sadness. And right near the center of my brain is where I feel anxiety. And so at the, at the same place I feel sadness, what we now know is my brain also feels it's equal but opposite, joy. And at the same level of my brain that I feel sadness, I also feel sadness is equal but opposite, which is happiness. In the same area of my brain that I feel anxiety, I feel it's similar but opposite emotion, pleasure. And so when somebody rejects or neglects my expression of sorrow and it hurts, eventually I stop feeling it. It's like them putting sand in a well. But what I unintentionally lose my ability to feel when I stop feeling sorrow is it's equal but opposite, which is joy. And so now I'm only expressing sorrow. I can't, uh, sadness, I can't really feel joy. I can't really feel sorrow. And every time my expression of sadness is rejected or neglected, it's like somebody pours sand in that well and eventually I lose my ability to feel sadness. But what else do I unintentionally lose my ability to feel? It's equal but opposite, happiness. And so now in life, I'm kind of in this really vicious cycle. I'm either anxious or I'm having to do something that feels relieving to the anxiousness, which is usually a pleasure-seeking behavior. And we call this spectrum of mental health struggles internalizing disorders. And so people who struggle with this later in life are people who say that they're worthless who say that they're not good enough, who feel like they're chronically inadequate, that they're never gonna get better, and that nothing they do will ever work. All right, some people don't really struggle with internalizing disorders, and lots of that happens over the course of your temperament development, your personality development in childhood. People who struggle with internalizing disorders are usually more of a shy disposition and more introverted. But that's not everybody. Some people are less likely to say, I'm wrong, I'm bad, I'm no good. And they're more likely to have an externalizing disorder saying, you're bad, you're wrong, you're no good. How could I have been so crazy to ever have been convinced there was anything redeemable about you? Those people don't really struggle with anxiety. They struggle with another emotion in that same category, anger. 
And that's the, that's the spectrum we call externalizing disorders in mental health. And what's tragic about this, Trace, is that is almost an invisible pattern of interaction early in life. It's really, really hard to see. And so people can be really emotionally shut down and mostly just feel anxiousness or anger and not really understand why. And those three factors that we mentioned, genetics, trauma, and environment, really significantly influence development of a struggle with anxiety and in some cases anger later on in life. So what do we do about it? How is that corrected? By that fourth domain, that fourth factor that influences anxiety, our spirituality. So I teach a four-step sort of process to ease anxiety that I want to share with you this morning to close. And if you feel like either maybe genetically or because of some trauma you went through or because of how you were cared for early in life, you may struggle with clinically significant anxiousness. The first step is to appeal to the Lord God. And so uh, breaking this down, what I mean when I'm saying appeal to God is to surrender your life and will over to God by using prayer and mediation to both seek after and make the commitment to surrender your life and will over to God. Prayer is the first step. And a statement I often use to encourage people along these lines is surrender what belongs to God anyway. There's a missionary and he was an author named Jim Elliott who said, who was quoted as to having said, he is no fool who surrenders what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what Jim Elliott was ultimately talking about there is our lives, because everything on earth, including our lives, is, God, is God's anyway. And nobody knew this better than the apostle Peter. He wrote some of the New Testament. And in 1 Peter chapter five and verse seven, he says, cast all your anxiety onto the Lord because he cares for you. Now that sounds really good, but how do we cast all our anxiety onto the Lord? By seeking God in prayer and making a commitment to surrender our life and will over to God. And that's a spiritual transformation that has to take place first. That's step one. Right, after we've made an appeal to God, the second thing we need to do is acknowledge things that we've been through and how they made us feel. So that's the second step is to acknowledge what you have been through in life and lean into the feelings that correspond and reveal to a trusted other what happened and how you felt and how it hurt. And a statement I often use uh, in this specific step is to acknowledge is to begin to overcome. To acknowledge it is to begin to overcome it. And a verse of scripture I really like here is taken from John chapter eight, verse 32. You'll know the scripture if the reference doesn't ring a bell. Jesus has just essentially set a woman free who was caught in adultery and about to get stoned to death. And he's teaching some people who are listening and he says, when you know the truth, John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. And the truth about who Jesus is, how much he loves you, the freedom we have in Christ, what you've been through and how it made you feel is what we're talking about in this acknowledgement step. 
So first, appeal to God. Second, acknowledge what happened and the feelings that you felt as a result and disclose. The third step is acceptance. Acceptance is step three. And by acceptance, here's what I'm meaning in the process. To really accept God's truth about who you are and adopt God's framework for seeing everything you see in your life. Carl Jung, a, a psychoanalyst who helped develop the field of mental health as we know it, is quoted as to having said, health comes not by seeing a different world, but by seeing the world differently. And so I've kind of stacked that statement on its head because I disagree a little bit. Health isn't just about seeing the world differently. It's about seeing a different world. And I like Acts chapter 918 right here. So this is the story of the Apostle Paul. And I think this is like the crux moment of his life in Acts chapter 918. So if you don't know the story, Paul planted lots of churches, wrote lots of the New Testament. But before he did all that, he killed people and was a really bad guy. And as he was on his way to like kill and persecute Christians in a town called Damascus, Jesus appeared to him on the road and struck him blind. And he's like, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you fighting against uh, my pursuit of you? And Paul and Jesus have an interaction. And Jesus says, I want you to get up. I want you to go to Damascus, find a guy named Ananias, and he'll pray with you. And afterwards, you'll receive your sight. And Acts 9.18 says, after Ananias prays on Paul, there were something like scales that fell from Paul's eyes. And afterwards, he received his sight. And the world Paul saw after he received his sight that day in Damascus was an entirely different world. I illustrate this point by telling a story about my wife. Uh, she's beautiful. She's way out of my league. If you know Kirsten, you know that to be true. And in the fourth grade, people ask, like, how did you meet your wife? And I'm like, she's almost legally blind. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, no, seriously, she is. Her eyeglass prescription must have been going bad when we met. So here's the story with that. In the fourth grade, my wife is sitting in the back of her classroom and she's doing this. And if you've got the camera on me, I'll have to zoom in. She's going like this. And her teacher goes, Kirsten, are you having trouble seeing the board? And she's like, yeah. And, my, and her teacher says, well, come sit up at the front. And she sits at the front and the teacher's like, can you see better? And my wife's like, yeah. So she gets sent to an optometrist, fitted with an eyeglass prescription, goes back two weeks later, puts the eyeglasses on and walks outside. And if you've had this experience, you know what I'm talking about. She says about this moment, Trent, I looked up at a tree and for the first time I realized a tree is not just a huge glob of green. There are like individual leaves on trees. She didn't just see the world differently. She saw a different world. So if you're struggling with anxiety, that's the paradigm shift we have to make. We have to adopt God's lens, his framework through which we see the world and his identity for us, the lens through which we see ourselves. And when we do that, our anxiety begins to subside a little bit. Appeal, acknowledgement, acceptance. The last step I call actualization, and I'll close with this. Actualization is just a fancy way of saying put something to use. 
And usually when we're talking about that in mental health, we're saying, put to use your ability to love people well or to do math with excellence or some skill, talent, gift, or ability that you have. When you put it to use, you've actualized that thing. But in this context, what I mean when I say actualization is that you leverage the experiences you've been through in life to find motivation, meaning, and purpose in life. And the statement I use to describe that is that we all should consider giving to others what we wish we would have gotten. And a verse I like uh, to use to describe this idea is John chapter one, verses four and five. So this is John's gospel. It's at the very beginning of John's gospel. And, and, and John's talking about Jesus. And he says, in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And that light shines into the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And I do think that happens supernaturally in each of our lives this side of heaven by way of the Holy Spirit. But I want to take that one step further. Each of you are the conduit through which the light and life of Jesus shines into the darkest realms of life this side of heaven. When you carry your message of struggle and survival into thriving to other people who are in the struggling stage of their journey, you literally shine the light and life of Jesus into their darkness. And what the research says in my field is that one of the best things you can do if you're feeling anxious is to do a good deed for somebody who's struggling. And that perfectly corresponds with biblical truth. So I want to close. And to do that, I'm going to end us in a prayer. But I want to invite you all into our response time before I pray. So at Trace Church, we celebrate communion every single Sunday. And communion is a moment where people who love Jesus and who have surrendered their lives to Jesus recall his sacrifice for us that he did out of love and how the Lord Jesus Christ is literally the substance that makes life possible. And so in eating food that represents the body and blood of our Lord, we're reminded of those things. And if you're struggling with anxiety today, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you wouldn't come up and get a cracker that, that's at one of the stations all around this auditorium. You'd come up and grab one of the white towels that are on either side of this stage as a surrender of your willingness to, to really dedicate your life to the Lord, as a sign of your surrender and willingness to dedicate your life to the Lord. You take that towel out the back of the auditorium when we close and we'll meet you at our next steps area in the docks. We wanna walk you through literally the next steps of your faith journey. And if you're struggling during our prayer time, that's time for an appeal. Seek after the Lord's face and maybe renew your commitment to surrender your life and will over to God every single day. Maybe for you, this is time to just acknowledge what you've been through between you and the Lord and really ask him to reveal and accept his framework for your identity and the, and the way you should view the world. And for some of you, it's that actualization step to ask God who in your circle you could shine his light onto. 
So after I pray, I invite you to participate in communion. Reflect on one of those steps, whichever one feels right for you. And I pray this moment will be meaningful for you this morning. Let's bow. Precious Heavenly Father, so thankful for, for you, for your love for us, for your son's sacrifice for our sins, through whom we find forgiveness and redemption and peace. And I just ask that anyone who's struggling that hasn't surrendered his or her life to you would be willing to make that, make that decision today. Some here today need to acknowledge things they've been through and admit that to you and lean into those feelings. For others, it's about accepting your framework, your lens for who they are and how they should view the world. And for others, it's about actualizing their story to encourage those around them. Whatever the right step is for our audience this morning, God, lead them into this moment in a way that grants them peace. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.